0: Welcome to the Make Dementia Your Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rita Jablonski. I'm a nurse practitioner and researcher with almost 35 years of experience working with people who have dementia and their family and formal caregivers. I explain why behaviors happen, what the behaviors mean, and how to best handle them. The information in this podcast is for educational purposes and is no substitute for medical advice or care. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 23, Taking Away the Keys. Wow, I cannot believe episode 23. So cool. And I also have to apologize for the lateness of this podcast. I normally like to record on Sunday afternoons, and that's usually when I do my Facebook lives and then I import the audio, I have this whole system. For some reason, on Sunday, Facebook took a giant shit. I mean, I recorded two Facebook lives, neither one saved, And it was like one technical glitch after another. So I wasn't a real being same technology and that really put me behind schedule. And it's also the end of the semester, so for my regular job, which I'm not allowed because of social media policies to tell you, but what? you've Nobody knows how to use Google, right? But anyway, for my main job, I have to create stuff and get things done because it's the end of the semester. So this week has been a little bit of a shit show, but I'm psyched because Thursday, this Thursday, the 16th is my birthday. And I am taking vacation from my birthday until the new year. I intend to have a great time. Do not fret. I'm not taking a vacation away from the podcast. I'm still going to continue to do the podcasts and Facebook lives and all the other cool stuff I do because that I really love. To me, that's not work. That's fun and creativity. All right. Now to dive into the content. And actually, before I get too deep into the how-to section of this podcast, I do want to briefly talk about emotions and beliefs of what i driving. And if you know the value system of the person living with dementia, that helps you figure out where there, you're going to get resistance about any type of behavior, and what strategies you can use and how to tweak existing strategies. So you will probably hear me say that a lot in future podcasts, really talking about knowing the person, but with driving, it's really important to know the emotional voltage, if you will, the values and beliefs around driving. So in my case, I grew up in Philadelphia. I mean, I grew up in the real city. It really cheeses me where I hear people say, oh. I live in Philadelphia, and what they really mean is I live in Bryn Mawr or Huntington Valley or, you know, some suburb in Philly. I don't care if you are literally three feet away from the Philadelphia border, unless you literally grew up in Philadelphia, you're not a Philadelphian for good or for bad. I mean, we're the people who booed Santa Claus in the 70s at all Eagles so anyway, growing up in the real city, driving was a nightmare. You pay a shit ton of money to park, the travel rooms going into the center of the city and a lot of the places where you would work. Cause I, I worked at the Philadelphia VN, that was my first job. I taught at community college of Philadelphia. So trying to drive to these areas were uh, a big pain in the ass because you would have, career, I mean, you would literally take, it would take an hour, no joke, to drive 10 miles. It was that bad. So I lived on public transportation. To me, taking the train or subway was often quicker than driving and then cheaper than paying those premium parking weights. And then what I love to do is I would read on the train. When I was going to grad school, at the University of Pennsylvania, that's how I got on my whole work done. It was great because I would just sit on the train or the subway, open up a book, and I would read like three chapters right before I got home. It was amazing. In fact, I was so resistant to learning to drive. I didn't really learn to drive until my senior year in high school and mommy Nana well, uh, asked me if she could buy me the the school ring because getting you a high school ring was, was a real big thing. I knew high school and I wanted no reminders of it. So I said to her, would you mind paying for driving lessons? Because nobody in my family would want it to teach me because I was so awful. I would panic because I I was a mess and my mom said, okay. And she gave me the money and I hired a driving instructor. And that's how I barely passed the driving test. So yeah, I suck at driving and it's not a pleasant thing. And ultimately I want to become wealthy enough that I hire a driver. You know, or I only use Uber or Lyft. I really need to drive. So if I were to develop dementia and my kids were to say, you can't drive, it would be like no worries. I would be more upset if they took away my iPhones with the apps. So my kids would definitely have a break if they needed to take away my car keys. As a matter of fact, uh, you probably have heard me talk about my seller. He's a state trooper in Florida. And I was teasing him about driving in Florida and, you know, him giving me a ticket. And he said to me, you know, Ma, we talked about that in the academy. You know, what happens if you pull over a family member? And I told him quite bluntly, I would have no problem writing you up because your typing really does suck. Thanks, Mark. Love you. And if anybody is listening to this in Florida and you get pulled over by a state trooper and his last name is Jablonsky, that is my son, and tell him it would be nice if he called his mother once in a while. <laughs> I love doing that because right now I have about, you know, 80 listeners and maybe three in Florida, and it would be so cool to have enough listeners that Somebody would pull him over and the listener would say, dude, call your mom. And uh, I mean, hopefully he, he has a sense of humor. If you do it at 3 a.m. I will guarantee you, he will call me at 3 a.m. And, and that would be hilarious. So that's my value system. Not a fan of driving, but I realize for many of my patients living with dementia, especially my male patients. Driving has this incredible emotional charge. It means freedom. It means independence. And if you look at people who grew up in areas without public transportation, Uber and Lyfts are relatively recent phenomena in at least my geographic area. Cabs, I mean, sometimes if this isn't New York where you have them all over the place in areas of the country. You may not have access to cab services. So I understand why individuals want to keep their license, want to drive because driving means independence and it means freedom. So again, it's really important to understand how the person living with dementia values driving in order to tweak these strategies and then the type of dementia also affects the use of the strategies. And I'll get to that in a moment. So I'm going to talk about four approaches to take away the keys, to get someone with dementia to stop driving. Now, the first thing I do want to say is, and this is something you don't do. And I've seen family members do this or take this approach. I've had family members have a family meeting, almost like an intervention, and you have the person living with dementia in the room and a couple adult children, other family members, and they're logically trying to explain to the person living with dementia that they cannot drive. They need to stop driving. If the person with dementia is unaware of their memory problems and driving issues, and I talk about anasignosia in other podcasts, but I'm, that's probably a topic I need to go back and dive deep in. If the person with dementia is not aware of their memory problems or driving issues, this approach can get you nowhere. You could have wind up with a big argument and possibly everybody getting pissed. So that's something, if, if you're tempted to do that, I would advise training carefully. Now, if the person you are interacting with knows they have memory problems, they are aware of it. And people with vascular dementia tend to have awareness that something is not right. Even with the different dementias, there is a minority of individuals who start to realize and can tell their mind is not working well. And they are also very frightened about that. So if that's the situation, if the person has awareness. That strategy might be successful, but if you're going to talk to them, it might be better to do it all in one and not have like this show of force. Okay. So approach number one, take a break from driving. And my rationale for saying, let's take a break. is because it's human nature. How would you feel if someone said to you, I need you to never eat chocolate again, or you can never watch Netflix again, or you can never have carbs or wine or, you know, whatever you love ever again, that's pretty fine. Now there are situations where people will say, yeah, this type of food or alcohol is not good for me and I'm just going to stop eating or drinking. Okay. But that's your decision. You came to that realization. But if you have a physician or some type of healthcare provider telling you, you can't do or have something for the rest of your life, that really sucks. But if you are told. Hey, I want you to give up chocolate, alcohol, your iPhone, what's up? Never mind, that might not work, but I want you to give up something for a month, for a couple of months. That feels better because I know I can do anything for 30, days. I can take a break from something because it's, it, it hasn't been taken away from me. That's usually my initial approach and in my practice. I will do an examination. And let's face it, as we age, something's going to be broken. There's going to be something we don't physically do as well. So I usually can find a physical issue and tell the person with dementia that I want him or her to take a break from driving until I can see them again in, say, six months. And I do that and I use alternative reasons, which gets into number two for the driving brand. because if someone living with dementia is not aware that he or she has memory problems, they're going to argue with me and with you, if family member, if you're telling them you can't drive because of memory issues. So I usually use the take a break approach. And ultimately what happens in like 95% of the cases as the memories Worsen as the cognitive abilities decline. Driving becomes another issue. The individual stops, asking you to drive, usually. So at this point, I'm going to team uh, with Blake and, you know, got to do the bills. And then I uh, will come back to talk about uh, strategies or approaches to three and four. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Better. so i want to talk about the other strategies the other approaches number two use of physical reason for the driving point and i talked i introduced that in strategy number one and like i said in number one the more we age the older we get we have more and more physical problems that could remotely create driving issues so if that person hadn't Any physical limitations that could remotely pose a problem, use that. Some examples include neck pain or arthritis. And I would say, well, since you really can't chill your neck, let's take a break from driving until you can get that fixed. Uh, Hip and knee problems are also a great approach for applying the physical reason to cease driving and to take a break. Even sweating on this from diabetes and people will be okay with physical problems. Not if you tell them it's because of memory issues, because what's going to happen is the person will say to you, but I'm a super good driver. I've never had any tickets and then maybe they have been okay in limited circumstances, but like I talked about in the last podcast. Driving, while it does rely on a lot of procedural memory and old, old tasks that have been done almost automatically, the problem is driving also involves the need to make split second judgments and decisions and to react. And if someone's brain power is being utilized just to drive, no pun (laughs) intended, just to. engage in the procedural memory component, there's nothing left. There's no brain juice left to handle any unusual circumstances, which is why people living with dementia, if they're going from their home to, say, Roland, and it's a relatively easy route, if there is any deviation to that route, let's say there's an accident, let's say there's road work let's say uh, a chamber down, so a section of the road is closed. So they have to maybe backtrack and find an alternative route. That's when people living with dementia are in trouble because all they know in their brain is they go so many miles or so many city blocks and they turn right at the King. Well, the road was closed so they have to take another route and now they're in their mind they're looking for the burger king so they may make a right at the next burger king and now they're in mississippi so that is really where i i get concerned when i hear family members saying oh they're they're safe enough to drive from point a to point b maybe maybe not also a, a note about these two strategies. When I'm working with someone with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, FTD, I have a mixed bag of success with these strategies. It's 50 50. And in fact, they can backfire when you are working with someone with behavioral variant FTD. Because people with behavioral variant FTD have what is called executive dysfunction. This means that people living of with this disease early on in the disease, in the initial stage, they present more with judgment and impulsivity problems. And they're very reactive. Like those, they can get into a range with very little provocation. Then as the FTD progresses, you see the memory issues arising a little later in the disease. So these individuals will do really well in the mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia stage. They will do super well on a lot of the traditional screening tests because the MMMC, the the, what's called the mini car where you have to, where the doctor will ask you to draw a clock and 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 recall three words, they may do better on those tests because many of these tests do not um really target executive function judgment. And, I mean you can you can ask on the Montreal Covenant assessment for people to do some abstract reasoning. Tell me how a train and a bicycle are alike. And if a person with FTD says they both have wheels, that's not abstract. That's concrete. I need them to say they're both mechanisms of transportation. So where I'm going with this is if you have a family member with behavioral variant FTD, using a physical reason for not driving and suggesting a break and mixed bag here, it does work in some cases. I've had a lot of success. But every once in a while, I'll have a person with behavioral variant FTD decide that um, if I tell them, you know, take a break because of reflex problems or because of the knee problem, I've had this happen. The person with FTD then goes back to the community and tells everybody that I'm going to let them drive in six months. So they obviously don't have FTD. And my reason for the approach where I was finding a physical reason to take a break is I was attempting to stop the FTD rage that will be unleashed on the family members. And even though I have really good intentions, there are times if the person with FTD is so antisygnosic about their limitations that me telling them to take a break in their mind, oh, I must not have FTD, I must be fixed, and I created a bigger problem. So I will flat tell people with FTD, I, I kind of assess where they're going, and, and I talk to their family members about different approaches, and in cases of people with able varying FTD, if I think using the physical reason and the take a break strategy will will backfire, I straight out tell them in the office, you cannot drive because you have a, a neurological disease, period. And then I instruct the family every time the driving issue comes up to blame me, because I don't want the family to always be on the receiving end of that FTD anger. It's, it's just not, it's not good. Now. Let's say you've tried the first two strategies and they're not working. And the person living with dementia is hell bent that they are going to get behind the wheel and they're going to drive no matter what. At that point, you need to disable the vehicle. And depending on the year, make and model of the car, this can be done in a variety of creative ways. For cars that have the push buttons on the door and you type in a code, you can have the dealer change the code. Just make sure you remember the code <laughs> for cars that use the electronic fobs the keyless uh cars remove the battery from the key fob well if you can't figure out how to do that because some of them are super tricky have your local mechanic or the dealers do this for all the makes and models you can do the old disconnect the battery cables i mean you can do that for any of the vehicles but for Okay, let, let's make it easy for, for you, because if you need to jump into that vehicle, you want to make sure you don't have to stop, pop the lid open, and you know, reconnect the cable wires. And I'm sure there are other very creative ways to disable vehicles. And if you are a uh, mechanic or an expert in in vehicles and you have some creative ways, I would love to hear them and I can share them in future podcasts. Just uh, contact me, all the contact information is in the notes. But one note of caution. I had a situation where the patient with dementia asked her neighbor to look at her car. And the helpful neighbor opened up the lid and looked into the car and realized the battery cables were disconnected. And happily connected the battery cables. So if you go this route, you may want to let the helpful neighbors know what is going on, so they don't fix the car. You may also want to call any of your driving services. Some people subscribe to, you know, uh, triple A here in the United States. I don't know what other car service, uh, services, uh subscriptions whatever that that you may have but if you had some type of roadside assistant for your vehicle you may want to contact the roadside assistance people and explain the situation because i had another individual who called triple a and they came out and reconnected the battery cables and the person drove away and that wasn't a good thing so disabled the vehicle now the Fourth strategy is to remove the vehicle. And there are a couple ways to do this. One family member got the bright idea to remove the vehicle after receiving a postcard that notified him that the car needed to go back to a dealer or a, uh, an approved mechanic to get some parts replaced. The vehicle was being recalled. There was some malfunction with. Uh, brake pads or or some issue that needed to be addressed so what he did is he did show the family member the recall notice and he took the car to get fixed and then when the car was fixed he took the car and put it in in another location he just dropped it over at another family member's house and for a couple of weeks dad kept asking about the car and the son's response was I'm waiting for a park And when I talk about entering reality, I'm not saying, I know people feel uncomfortable sometimes with lying or the the use of fiblets. It's up to you, but I've gotten caught out on all situations because you just never know when the neurons are assigned to fire. So what the son just said, he was very vague and he simply said, I'm waiting on a part. And that satisfied being the question. And ultimately dad stopped asking about the car. So I've had many creative family members use variations on the theme of the car is getting work done or waiting on the part. And right now with all of the supply chain issues, you're, you're telling the truth. <laughs> I took my car into the garage yesterday to get brake pads replaced and the mechanic found another issue. And he has to order a part Now the car is, is drivable. It's it's just, you know, one of those annoying things with the sunroof. But he said to me, well, I'll call you as soon as the part comes in. And I chuckled and said, well, I guess I'll see you in July. And he looked at me and said, maybe. So with supply chain issues, you will not be fitting. However, and again, this comes from experience, no matter how tempting Do not tell the person living with dementia that the car has been stolen. I've had family members do this. They were desperate. they removed the car and they just said, oh shit, somebody stole the car. You will create feelings of fear and anxiety, which is a really shitty thing to do. And these feelings will likely trigger a ton effect of other emotions. And you'll be handling new behaviors. So you've fixed one problem but created three others. And that's the one I want for any of you. The other issue with not telling the person living with dementia that the car has been stolen, what if they pick up the phone and call the police? And I've had people engage in this activity. And the police show up. And they take the report. Meanwhile, you're dragging the car over to a neighbor's house or over to the dealership to sell the car and it gets flagged as a stolen vehicle. Yes. Your life just took another turn and not a good one. So save yourself some aggravation and do not take this approach. In summary, once you are in a a position where the person is no longer driving, do not under any circumstance relax your stare, your your approach, and let them dry just one more time, because if you do this, you will reverse all the progress you made. Now, some of you are listening and thinking, "Who the hell will do that? It may not be you. I've had situations where the immediate family took away the vehicle and maybe gave the truck to a third cousin or sold the truck to another family member and then that family member unwittingly. Drives over to the house and, and our family members try to be nice and says to the person living with dementia, yeah, this is your old car. Are you you know, you want to take a ride in a full time? see? say, it? no, 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 no. Don't, don't. Just don't do it. And that's pretty much it for today's podcast. So, again, thank you for listening. I do love spending time with you when I have the podcasts. The, oh, some updates. The book is still being edited. I have to email the editor and get a date when the book will be released. So my Make Dementia Bitch book is, like everything else, delayed. And I'm okay with that because I want an awesome book and not something that's half-assed. And you're reading it and there's tight bows and screw-ups because that's what I pay an editor for. So the book is delayed. I'm hoping to release it after the new year. I do have a free webinar and I'll have the information in the show notes. If you can't figure out how to access the show notes or they're not showing up because I don't know, you know, which platform you're using, you can always reach out and email me at makedimensionyourv at gmail.com. If you go to the anchor page, you can even leave me a voicemail on there. The anchor page does have a really cool way for listeners to leave recordings for the podcast hosts and developers. So please reach out to me and let me know if you are interested in the free webinar that I'm doing on December 20th. It is Joy to the Dimension World: Getting Through the Holidays as a Caregiver. The title on the registration page is a lot fancier than that, but that is the gist of what I'm doing. And it's December 20th and it's 10 a.m. Central time. So I look forward to seeing as many awesome listeners as I can. And here's the thing, I'm using a video conferencing platform. This way it allows me to open up your microphones and we can talk to each other and see each other. So it's not like a Facebook Live where you can only type things in. This webinar, we can have a conversation. And I'm so excited to be able to meet some of you December 20th for the free webinar. I will do be doing more of this stuff and I'll keep you um, in informed so that you can reach out. And at some point, I really would love to see And here, my listeners, I really appreciate you. And together, let's make dementia our bitch.